There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time or legally can't go to any of them. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat. So on Cinema Smorgasbord presents Cinema Fantastica, we pick one of those festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against each other. On our second installment, we're heading to one of the world's foremost international festivals specializing in fantasy and horror films. And one of the oldest is the 1977 edition of the Sitges Film Festival, and we're looking at two down-and-dirty horror classics. It's Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes versus Juan Lopez Moctezuma's Alucarda. Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the world. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Liam O'Donnell. But today, Liam, we are enemies, as we're tasked with putting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see who reigns supreme. How you doing today, though, Liam? How you doing? I mean, I wouldn't consider us enemies, Doug, because that would uh, require me viewing you in this contest as an equal and knowing mm. that this is a slaughter from which you could not possibly emerge. This is more like uh, I am a hunter and you are my prey. All right. Well, in this hunter prey scenario, this, this is so I'm the underdog is what you're saying, right? And what yeah. do people love more than an underdog story where you, hunter, out there chasing a wolf? I'm the wolf, of course. And you turn a corner and you think you got me like like dead to rights, and then I jump up and rip out your throat. This is more like I'm a wolf and you're a muskrat. And based oh. upon the amount that people watch nature shows, people actually love watching an underdog get fucked up by a predator because that's well, all those shows are. Well, let me tell you about a musical group called Captain and Tennille, and they had a song called <laughs> Muskrat Love, Liam. So oh why my don't we focus God. on that today? You, you just love to tell on yourself. All the time, Just there's so many opportunities for you not to say something embarrassing. And you're like, no, I must inform the world of what a loser I am. Oh, Here's I'm sorry. I'm sorry reference. I'm not listening to Sick of It All or something like that. <laughs> that I had no, to go back and listen to the classics. Good, good pull. That was a good pull as well. <laughs> Liam, we are enemies today. And honestly, everything you're saying just reinforces that further. But before we get into the films, Liam, let's talk about the festival itself. So the Sitges Film Festival is one of the longest-running genre film festivals on the planet and also one of the most respected, and it started all the way back in 1968. Yeah, in 1968, they were focusing on horror and fantasy. Uh, and what's in kind of interesting, Liam, and we saw this as we were going through their website, which thankfully has a list of all the films that they've shown in all of the uh, the various editions of the festival, is that... Looking at 1977, which is what we're doing here, they only had like a few dozen films. And even though of those dozen, few dozen that they showed, there's only something like 10 that were actually within the competition itself. Uh, this edition, 1977, ran from October 1st to October 10th. But like in modern times, this festival shows dozens and dozens and dozens of genre films like the Fantastic, uh, like the... Um, Fantasia Film Festival, like most film festivals at the time. Now, did were you you actually suggested this festival to me? What is your familiarity with it? Oh, I have friends who are in uh, film acquisition who go. This is like one of their favorites to go to. Right, it's one that I've tried to keep an eye on, not always successfully, but just like if something's coming out of there that's well known, especially because. Um, I mean, I guess Fantasia does a good job of international, but not all of the 
uh, genre fest here in the U.S. always do what I would call a great job of pulling from the international market. Sure. So I'm I'm curious about international. Now, don't get me wrong; like that doesn't mean if something's from Europe or something's from Asia or whatever that it's going to be good. Like I've watched plenty of terrible, you know, uh, uh, not from America horror fi- horror films, but um, I still like to keep an eye on what's coming out of Sitges that has a, a certain amount of spice on it. Plus, I just knew it was an older festival, and my worry is with this project, I could I would actually be fine if we focused just on the last decade like we could do this podcast just talk Mm -hmm. about the 2000s and there'd be a ton of movies that that we could talk about that would be interesting to me and i don't want that to just be it i want i want to make sure that we're expanding out now the next thing we do might be only five years old and i'd be okay with that too but i just thought what's what's a festival we could do that actually lets us go back into the past so we're not only talking about the recent past and citrus just seemed like an obvious choice for that I was I wasn't skeptical when you suggested it, but I I didn't know much about it. But then diving in, I was like, "You're right. This is absolutely perfect." Now, the reason that we chose 1977, it's kind of funny because it kind of came down to not the films that were available. It came down to the fact that the jury that year included Dario Argento as one of the um, as one of the people picking the kind of awards for that show. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting to think about that. To think like, oh, by 1977, I mean. I'm not surprised by this, but just like reminding myself, by 1977, Dario Argento is a known figure. He yeah. is like already the the maestro. You know what I mean? So like mm-hmm. having him, he's probably the star power. You know, I, I don't know if people know, maybe this is like inside baseball, but a lot of juries for film festivals will have someone on the jury that's the name person. Yeah. Uh, and that person sort of works as the... Uh, par- almost like part publicist of what's going on. Not that their input isn't also important, but uh, you know, uh, they sort of act as like the the get for the festival. And especially if it's someone who doesn't have a film, you wouldn't you wouldn't bring someone in as a jurist who has a film. But it's a way right. to keep that person's name. You're, you're getting their shine without having to premiere one of their movies if they don't have a movie out. It's interesting because there's been a lot of discussion in regards to these juries, you know, sometimes about the relationships that some of these name people have with other filmmakers that are in uh, that are in competition. But that's what's kind of interesting to go back and look at the awards for a genre film festival from the late 70s and seeing how the shine on some of these movies has changed since then. So just to give you an idea, there are uh, three, six, seven movies that were in competition in 1977, and those movies are... Rabid by David Cronenberg, Death Trap by Toby Hooper, The Hills Have Eyes by Wes Craven, Burnt Offerings by Dan Curtis, The Sentinel by Michael Winner, The House on Straw Hill by James Kenelm Clark, and Alucarda by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. And I think of the ones listed, uh, you know, if, if you had to ask uh, kind of a, a horror fan at this point, what are the movies that really stick out to you there? I think probably the two might be Rabbit and The Hills Have Eyes. Would you agree with that? Oh, I I would actually expand to include burn offerings and the sentinel a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. though they're they're lesser card like rabbit and the hills of eyes. I'd say I'd say are considered classics, like all time right. classics. But I'd say in the last uh, ten years or so, burn offerings and the sentinel have. Uh, gotten more juice but almost entirely because of really quality blu-ray releases so yeah um i think i forget which companies release them but each of them have had releases recently that got people talking about them again and especially i think burnt offerings has really sort of jumped up in comparison but when you think about it 
now, I mean, Burn Offerings is a PG film. I yeah. can't imagine a competition <laughs> where Burn Offerings is competing with uh, our two movies today, The Hills Have Eyes, which is, if anything, extreme, and yeah. Alucarda, which, like, I I would have trouble imagining Alucarda playing in a U.S. cinema in 1977. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it Anyway, we'll, we'll get into uh, my surprises when it came to Alucarda. In terms of the awards for that festival, the Best Feature Film Director... Uh, went to Dan Curtis for Burnt Offerings. Best Script went to David Cronenberg for Rabid. Um, the Critics Award went to The Hills Have Eyes. But it seemed like the big awards were kind of focused around uh, Burnt Offerings, including Best Actor and Best Actress, Burgess Meredith and Karen Black for that movie as well. But I, I you're right you're right to say that I think the... Um... Wait, 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 wait. Can we stop for one second here? Sure. Best Actor to Burgess Meredith. For two movies. For two movies. I get that it's two movies and that's cool, but the disrespect to my man Oliver Reed right now is like <laughs> no filling kidding, me right? with rage. Filling me with rage. Karen Black earned respect. Love her. She's great in the movie. Burgess Meredith over Oliver Reed, and I don't even like the Sentinel like that. Like, oh man, <laughs> Liam, I can hear you thumping your fist. You're so angry about this decision. I just love Oliver Reed. You know, I love him, and so I just uh, think, so do I. I mean, is this the Devils? No. But does he still res- deserve more respect uh, for this performance than Burgess Meredith? I think so. That's just my opinion. So, Liam, we've left it kind of open in regards to this list of movies. We uh, took it upon ourselves to choose a movie from this list to pit against one another. That's not necessarily what we think is the best from that year, but one that we want to uh, kind of put forward and talk about. Why did you choose Aldecarta? Oh, yeah, just sigh right into the microphone. Sorry, 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 sorry. (laughs) I was just trying to think of, you know, so I wanted something that would be interesting to talk about that um, uh, was outside of something that I feel like is talked about a lot. You know, I feel like, as I said, recently the burn offerings have been getting more shine, and I've honestly covered burn offerings on my other show, Horror Business, uh, Mm -hmm. not that long ago. Uh, Rabbit is a favorite, but I honestly just... I almost want to talk about Rabid. I, I feel like Cronenberg, for me, I want to discuss Cronenberg in the context of Cronenberg. Sure. And comparing Cronenberg to other things is weird. Um, and so I just went for something that I know I love, but I hadn't watched in a while, and, and so it gave me an opportunity to rewatch it and to think about it. And it, to me, sticks out like a sore thrum, thumb from this list in a really interesting way. And so I thought it would be fun to do to cover that. It's also reflective of what you were saying, which is that this is an international festival. Though I say that knowing that the film is in English, uh, with a lot of English performers speaking English. But I do have to say that until probably the early 2000s, I didn't hear much about Alucarda here in uh, where I am in the West, mostly because it wasn't as available as some of these other movies. Yeah, I think um, I think if if anything, it's it's sort of uh, come back. Uh, like I like the same way that I described uh, burn offerings and the Sentinel sort of re-entering our, our knowledge, but I think it's come back stronger now because I'm sure at the time it just didn't really play here as much and, and didn't have the opportunity to find an audience. But I think actually with the DVD release, it kind of got a lot more attention. And now that it's coming, I think it's out on Blu-ray or it's, it's coming out on Blu-ray. Sure. I think it's going to have even more opportunity for people to discover how utterly insane it is. 
It, I, I can't argue with, with that word in this case. I chose The Hills Have Eyes uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it is probably one of the most standard of the movies that are listed here. I actually hadn't seen The Hills Have Eyes ever uh, until a couple of years ago. I was doing a project a couple of years back on the best horror films of the 1970s, and I actually uh, was surprised at how kind of gritty and disturbing the movie was in a lot of ways, and really in how much it took from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we'll talk about when we talk about the movie proper. Um, and I really wanted to revisit it because I have a lot of mixed feelings about Wes Craven as a director, uh, but I also think that he brings a point of view to his films, which is really unique, that is a little bit more cerebral. But I also have always struggled with what the central uh, metaphor is supposed to be in The Hills Have Eyes. And I thought a revisit and a discussion about it could be really interesting, even though it is obviously, compared to Alucarda, a movie that's been talked to death. Uh, but it's also clearly a superior film, right, Liam? Oh, man. Oh, oh man. yeah? What? What are you going to do about it, huh? <laughs> well, let's get into it, buddy. Well, before we get into it, let's take our first break, Liam. When we come back, we're going to talk about The Hills Have Eyes. I'm going to uh, pester you and demean you until you agree that it's the better of the two films uh, being offered. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, that's what you sound like. We'll be back in just one second. They fought back. Anything was a weapon. A family dog to the family car. It's working! The Hills Have Eyes. The most shocking, terrifying film you will ever see by Wes Craven, writer and director of The Last House on the Left. The hills have eyes. The lucky ones died first. On the way to California, a family has the misfortune to have their car break down in an area closed to the public and inhabited by violent savages ready to attack. It's The Hills Have Eyes from the year 1977, written and directed by Wes Craven, uh, with a uh, <laughs> unique cast, uh, but uh, we'll talk about it in some sort of detail in just a moment. It's really difficult, Liam, to watch The Hills Have Eyes without thinking of its clearest inspiration, which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It shares... The uh, art director, set dresser, Robert Burns from that film, and the grimy aesthetic that made it so memorable and terrifying just three years earlier. And that's a funny thing to think about, too. It seems like that gap between 1974 and 1977 is huge. It also shares, like, plot elements. Uh, it's got the focus on the uh, family dynamics of the group of cannibals. There's a group of innocents that are at their mercy and uh, a willingness to kind of really dig into uh, depravity in regards to what's on screen. To me, Liam, and I don't know if this uh, this comparison is going to work for you, The Hills Have Eyes functions as the dream on to Texas Chainsaw's Stairway to Heaven. Dream on the Aerosmith song. Do you know this song, Liam? Aerosmith's yeah. Dream On? What yeah. do you think about this song, Liam? It's bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad, but sometimes you're in the mood for Dream On. No, When never. you're not in the mood for Stairway to Heaven. Well, so, I'm never in the mood for Stairway to Heaven either. No, so I go. understand that, but what I'm saying is, you couldn't have Dream On without Stairway. It doesn't exist, right? And maybe you're not in the mood for one. Maybe you're in the mood for the other. But there might be a time in your life where you listen to Dream On and it just hits that spot. You know what I mean? It's just hitting that spot in a way that uh, because you've heard Stairway a million times, you just want something a little bit different. Dream On can be that thing for just that moment. So even though I think that this is in some way a derivative film, I do think that it stands on its own. Uh, but whether... 
it's superior or not, I guess we'll leave down to our discussion, Liam. What do you think of 1977's The Hills Have Eyes? Um, you know, I, I saw it when I was younger, and I think it was just too stark for me. It was too kind of just out there um, in what it was doing. Um, I revisited it later because I went and saw the remake in the theaters mm. when it came out, and right. I didn't love that experience either, um, though I didn't hate it. Uh, and then I came back to this movie and thought, oh, okay, I kind of get it. You know, it is it is what it is. Um, on this watch, I was kind of stoked because I thought, you know, my, my taste for, and I'll just, you know, say it as honestly as I can, for the sure. distasteful for movies that are lacking in taste – uh, has only increased, and so I thought, <laughs> yo, this is really going to click for me. This is the time that I'm gonna really going to get the Hills Have Eyes and get why it's so uh, honestly beloved by certain people. Not, sure, not universally. A lot of people hate it too, but but for a certain group of folks, they really think it's it's the bee's knees. And so I was kind of stoked to rewatch, and uh, still doesn't work for me. I think um, I think uh, the your you sort of bring on the point that the central metaphor if it's working with a metaphor which is hard to say uh is I, a- I, I, not just to interrupt you there i think you can only watch this through the eyes of some sort of metaphor because there are certain moments dropped into it like the racism of the father or the right. family right that uh, and 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 the, the dynamics of the cannibals that that it's supposed to represent something no but please continue but i don't know if it's consistent like okay so uh people who know Wes Craven or at least pay attention to films of this sort of early uh, like new American horror period you know I'm sure people are familiar with The Last House on the Left which sure did not intend really at all on any intellectual level to represent something it didn't intend to be about something and it was only in retrospect that I think Wes Craven kind of named like well it kind of was about something though and I think that's true of a few movies from that period that I I think it'd be fair to say that so like uh uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. That in the time, you're just working with the cultural materials you have. And then in retrospect, you go, oh, I think I was really influenced by this and that and whatever, you know. Um, uh, so, for example, you know, the, he's often said that the Kent State Massacre probably influenced the ways that he uh, both uh, made and then also marketed The Hills Have I, or not The Hills Have Eyes, um, Last House on the Left. Sure. So, I think he, my feeling on the Hills of Eyes is he went in trying to recreate that alchemy, you know, that that untouchable thing where he's like, well, it's 1977. Stuff is just as crazy now as it was then. And I'm really going to get at it. But like, it doesn't feel like he has a consistent idea of what it is that he's getting at. And it, it, it doesn't really work for me in that level. So what I'm left with is just an extreme exploitation movie, which in retrospect is it turns out not as extreme as I thought it was when I was, you know, 13 and watched sure. it. Uh, but it's still kind of cruel and upsetting, though I will say, you know, I think a lot of takes on the film are like, well, it's unnecessarily cruel or it's over the top mean to its characters. But I don't know. There's a bit of a sentimentality to having uh, these uh, hill people mostly destroyed by a large dog. Like, you know, that that they're so the idea is they've been living in the wilderness so long that they've never had to fight a predator before. Like, I I just find that, you know, mountain lions exist. So, you know, the the idea that, like, mostly this is just us getting to watch a dog mess them up with a little help from the family here and there. But, you know, a a lot of the 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 real uh, revenge 
pieces where you really get to feel like, yeah, they really got what they had coming tend to come from the dog is like, honestly cool. I'm not critiquing it, but it kind of goes in the opposite direction of how people describe this movie, which is unsentimental and mean. Um, Mm. I don't think that's true of those sequences at all. I think it'd be quite the other way. It's some real uh, fan service to have this dog mostly (laughs) mess everybody up and come out, you know, pretty on top. On the other hand, uh, the film only ends with violent catharsis. There's no, the film offers no uh, promise that this family is going to be okay in any way whatsoever. It just simply gives you the, the luscious bloodlust that you've, you've been waiting for. Um, all that being said that all that negative comes from wanting to find out what it is that people find so compelling about the movie and and click with it that doesn't mean i wasn't entertained i think it's 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 got a good pace to it um i think the 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 uh the cretins are sufficiently (laughs) cretinous um i like some of their performances even as i dislike others um and overall i still was like yeah it's just it's it's pretty good i just I'm kind of a Wes Craven apologist. Interesting. Uh, there's just some of the movies that people point out as his worst or as not very good that I actually kind of enjoy. Um, and so I, I'm just kind of bummed. I wish this was on the list for me of things that Wes Craven did that were actually really good. Uh, this just doesn't make the list for me. It's it's not bad. It's not terrible. Uh, it's probably better than Deadly Friend, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's still not something that I, I need in my life. I don't need to own it. I, I probably won't watch it again for like fun. It's just you know it is it is what it is, but it's not something that I really care about. It's a movie I struggle with a little bit, um, you know, partially because of the difficulty of kind of getting a handle on what it's trying to say. I mean, I do think there's some. There's some elements that you can wring out uh, pleasure from the idea of like a literal nuclear family meeting a, a more traditional form of a nuclear family and what happens when uh, these sort of upper middle class people uh, encounter, you know, who feel like they're so prepared and can handle anything that you just take away kind of one element of their comfort and have and then they have to kind of fend for themselves and how um, and how they they completely fall apart almost immediately. And the fact that the movie is cruel, and I'm glad that you used that word because there is a element of cruelty in this movie, that it's cruel enough that it'll just, you know, it'll kill the matriarch, it'll kill the patriarch, and not just kill them, but make them suffer in a really unpleasant way. Uh, it shows that the movie, I think, is willing to go to places that a lot of horror films, even in 1977, wouldn't be willing to go. But I will say that the thing that stuck out to me on this viewing is how humorless it is. And I know that's yes. kind of a weird thing to say, but like the thing about watching The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a movie I've watched dozens and dozens of times, is even though I don't think you would necessarily call it a funny movie, certainly compared to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but it's a movie that obviously has intentional dark humor within it. And whether you find it funny or not, that probably is down to the individual. But I I find it funny when I'm watching it, and I absolutely am convinced that Toby Hooper put that in intentionally, if only because he, you know, turned it up to 11 for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Here, there's nothing. There's no relief on display at all. The only thing that you get is what you were saying, the kind of catharsis from the violence, and that's not really enough for me to want to revisit something to experience that particularly because it almost feels kind of like it's just random at, at who is 
who dies and who survives in this movie. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of rhyme or reason. It's not, you know, there isn't one of the cannibals who are shown to be particularly intelligent. There's just a father. Uh, and when it comes to the family, I mean, all of them are kind of useless to some extent or another. Though I do think that that's also one of the things I like about it, is that this family, they're believably boring. They're believably kind of... Um, uninteresting and you don't necessarily root for them. In fact, I do feel like Wes Craven has specifically put in elements like the father talking about his days as a cop and using a lot of racist language a lot around it that you are supposed to not be so sympathetic uh, with them. But then it's sort of, then it, it becomes difficult to understand what he's trying to say when it's just them being put through hell again and again and again while a dog knocks people off a cliff or well, you know I mean, bites I into mean, their leg. I mean, I think if I were to take a guess, and again, I haven't seen Wes Craven talk about, I, I've seen Wes Craven talk about his other films. So, sure. you know, I don't really know, other than a brief sort of thing here and there, what, what he thinks about this movie. What I get from it is um, this entire situation is the U.S. government's fault. Right. You know, and so um, they're in this battle zone that they don't want to be in. That's sort of a, a liminal space that we've decided that whoever's there doesn't matter because we have to test out our war machines. That seems to be the only consistent thing. The rest of it is sort of like, you know, uh, just there for extremity, you know, like the way they're dressed that, that doesn't matter. Or, um, you know, the idea that, uh, these, these, uh, Cretans are the results of our own, sort of testing and nuclear you know because obviously the the patriarch uh is it the suggestion is deformed in some way because of the toxicity of the environment and that's i don't think unimportant but it's not i think uh it's not as important as you could make it out to be other than this idea that that our country is dangerous because of the government and i actually think the reference to him as a cop and being a bit racist is is a oblique commentary on crime in america like it's really easy to blame poor people for being dangerous if you don't take the time to ask yourself well if you lived in a desperate ghetto in which even finding food was hard to do how dangerous would you be you know what i mean uh and it's all undercut whatever commentary that might entail is entirely undercut by the extremity of the cretinousness of these hillbilly people who like are the worst case scenario. There is no sympathy for them. Even as the dog is ripping apart their bones in front of your yeah. eyes, no part of you is like, oh, Barryman, I love you. Like, no, it's, <laughs> they're just monsters. And so the, the idea that like whatever commentary could be there is, is doesn't really work. And e- even within the family itself, you know, the, the, uh, a husband, you feel bad for him and he, with his wife dying and him trying to save his baby. But, he's not that interesting or, or no. accessible. The little ki- the, the they're not little kids because they're basically full on adults pretending. To be it's teenagers. funny because they're kind of presented as little kids and how they act in the movie. But yeah, they're, they're obviously people in their late teens, early yeah, 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full, the full adults. I would serve them alcohol is what I'm saying. And um, <laughs> I know you would, Liam. Well, you love for alcohol. sure. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like they seem probably in their 20s. Uh, their attempt to portray kids makes them utterly annoying. Like, they're almost more annoying than the racist cop dad who's already annoying. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's just honestly, um, 
uh, D. Wallace is the only character in the film. Other, I guess the mom is kind of sympathetic, but it's really just the mom and D. Wallace. I'm like, oh, I like them. And then the rest of the family, I'm like, I don't know, eat them, don't eat them, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I, the mother is even kind of undercut by her obliviousness to everything that's going on. And there's also a part where she prays with the family, which makes it, <laughs> which is kind of irritating. I think that the film, and I, I don't want to spend too much time uh, critiquing it simply because I'm trying to win this competition that we're in here. Sure. <laughs> what I'm going to say is, I think the film in some ways, maybe it doesn't fail on an intellectual level. Maybe it's just something I'm not grasping in regards to it. But I do think that it's successful in terms of being a thrilling interesting, engaging horror movie that, as you said, it moves at a strong pace. It does give you those moments of catharsis. It does have a really interesting, unique premise that I think is uh, something that, that in terms of creating a scenario where a family is completely cut off from the rest of the world, that they're at the mercy of this group of very violent and unpredictable people. I feel like the scenario works really well. And I think that Wes Craven at this point in his career was a capable enough director that uh, that he makes those set pieces work really well, and that it's a really kind of entertaining, if you can use that word, movie to watch. That said, it is a film that, when I weigh it in my mind against the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, again, is kind of unfair, but they're both kind of considered horror classics. I know that there are people out there who prefer this movie to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, I just can't see... I just can't see myself revisiting this in the same way that I re- revisit that, which, again, isn't necessarily a mark of the quality of one film over the other. There's lots of movies that I really loved that I really uh, engage with on a really personal way that I don't revisit because maybe they're difficult to, you know, they're, they're maybe frustrating or difficult in a way that I, that, that I need to take a break from every once in a while. But I do think that this movie is missing that little extra something, whether it is, the uh the 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 metaphor at its center or whether it is characters that i'm a little bit more connected to that that it means that i just don't have as much of an emotional attachment to it well i think that i don't want to i don't want to criticize any movie just because it doesn't thematically work for me or or right or even worse philosophically work for me because a movie could be entirely entertaining without that aspect but a i think you'd have to really convince me uh in in a intense way that the movie isn't meant to mean something because i think it is meant to mean absolutely i just don't think it's clear what that something is and um if you're going to make a movie that doesn't have a point but is this cruel then you better turn that cruelty up to 11 and instead this is just a slightly mean kind of boring adventure movie to me and uh, like a survival it, movie almost. Yeah, it doesn't really work as a horror movie for me. I'm not there's not a lot of tension until the end. The baby stuff gets me a little bit. Sure, but, of course. But that's about it. And um a lot of it just sort of is just violence for violence sake. Uh and for me, if and we've talked about this before, if we're gonna watch something that is about the violence, then I want something that's either totally over the top or i want something that's more along the lines of like a martial arts influence film which could sure. also be gory we've all seen mm-hmm. beautiful martial arts films that are unforgiving in their use of blood and guts so i just think you know all the things that this could be that would appeal to me it isn't but that being said um because that makes it sound like it's bad i still don't actually think it's bad i was entertained <laughs> i just don't i'm not utterly i'm not totally in for it and i i think there's enough weirdness there that if 
something was changed for me i think it's if the family was more interesting and as you pointed out that there was some humor some humanity for me to relate to before things get crazy then i think the film would be more compelling than what it is now you did mention before liam that you had seen the remake of the hills have eyes now i've only seen bits and pieces of the remake have you seen it in recent enough memory to compare the two no. i know a lot of people like the remake more yes in fact um uh We've had things post, po, uh, posted on Cinepunks that uh, were arguing for the superiority of the remake and was mildly compelling, actually. So I might need to rewatch it now that I've watched this. And That said, I Liam, I, I know people who make that argument for the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I think they're out of their fucking minds. No, those people are monsters and should be yeah. jailed. But, uh, but to me, I don't know. It, it might be better... I guess, but the issue is by the time the remake comes out, you really have to either, I mean, you have to succeed on the levels that this one isn't succeeding for us now, which is it has to be that much more extreme, which it kind of is, or it has to be more charming for the family where you really are pulling for them, and my memory of it is that it's neither of those things, but it is just like this one you know pretty entertaining i think if i return to it my guess is that the aesthetic is not going to work for me because of the time period when it came out like i i I just uh it felt very much of a movie of its time and and i don't i don't know that i'll love that but i'm also willing to give it a chance because like i said seeing it in the theater i remember thinking like oh that wasn't so bad and i've been told that the director's cut which i have not seen Hmm. is actually that much better because it includes a little bit more material that kind of fleshes out the family and the and the crazies uh in the hills <laughs> a little bit a little bit more which might be interesting i don't know um i will say again uh it, it came off maybe a little bit as a critique i think the fan service of having dogs fucking up crazy people is actually super cool it's actually my favorite part of the movie especially so, because this movie you know, does include you know, a dog getting killed and in, in right. a pretty, you know, explicit way. Right. Totally. Oh, and so that, that in and of itself, I'm like, you know, uh, I might be willing to go back to the remake for that. But I, I also know people who like truly find the remake gross and horrible. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's worth uh, keeping that in mind as I go into that. I might find it actually more upsetting than I did when I saw it. Um, they're all, this movie also has a notorious sequel, uh, which friend of the show, Josh, Josh Alvarez, apparently has told you, Liam, is a superior movie. Yeah, to- he said he watched them back to back, and he thought two was better. And I, I've i never even seen two. I've never seen a moment of it, so I have no idea. I uh, Here on Cinema Fantastica, we appreciate off-the-wall opinions, but that might be a little bridge too far <laughs> in regards to it. Uh, I mean, I think it's worth it's worth watching. Uh, because uh, especially if you have an understanding of how it came together, and it is a very strange movie in a lot of ways. But boy, uh, unless you're in, unless you're watching it for very different reasons than I watch movies, I can't necessarily understand how someone could think it's a superior movie. But guess what, folks? You can let us know if you agree. But about anything that we're saying right now. You can go to the uh, Cinema Smorgasbord site at cinemasmorgasbord.com and uh, you can email us, you can message us through Twitter or Facebook and let us know what you're thinking about what we're thinking at the moment. Uh, good discussion, I, all this cri- All this criticism might get our mentions destroyed, but I'm okay with that because, hey, you know. This is, a, this is a really loved movie, but I also think it's a movie that it's very safe to critique. Um, 
Wes Craven, I, I wish we could dive into that a little bit more. Maybe we will in a future episode. The idea of you as an apologist for his films. He he his career was so all over the place, particularly in the nineteen eighties. Um and there are some movies in there in that decade that I think are sort of somewhat hidden gems, while others I just can't see any quality in them whatsoever. And even some of the movies that are really well liked, I know that recently we had a discussion on social media about New Nightmare, which is a movie that I always had a really high opinion of and then revisited a couple of years ago and last year actually, and did not enjoy it. I mean, I, I won't say I didn't enjoy it all. There's still parts of it that I enjoy, but, but it, its reputation went well down for me. You know, I need to come back to it, but yeah, my memory of it is is very positive. In fact, um, after rewatching the Scream movies and being turned off largely by them, um, some someone recommended I go to New Nightmare as it being his superior meta film. Yeah, I I think it's I think at the time it felt like this very uh, breath of fresh air and. Um, and there is obviously that consistency in, re- in regards to the meta commentary from that into Scream, but uh, I don't know if it's the superior movie. I actually think that I've swung back into thinking that Scream is a better movie by a significant amount, even if some of that Kevin Williamson dialogue hasn't necessarily aged so well. But this isn't a podcast talking about Scream, and it's not talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, two superior movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's talking about The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, I think we've. I was gonna say we've made our case. It kind of felt like I was working against myself, but that's yeah, okay. yeah. You sucked at this this time. You no. could have at least brought up that Michael Berryman is is a true gift to the world. You know what always surprises me is how little Michael Berryman is in this movie, and that he isn't presented as kind of the main uh, bad guy character in it. He's just this kind of, and and he is great. I mean, he 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 deserves the attention that he got from this movie. Um, because he is so memorable in that character, but it it does feel like a secondary character, and he's not given the most eloquent. Uh, well, I was going to say death, but not real death. If you've seen the sequel, but he isn't really given the most um, eloquent scene where he has to tussle with a dog that overpowers him in every single way. But he's the only memorable part of the whole group. Like the whole group is supposed to be upsetting, and they do upsetting things. But really, none of them are actually visually interesting at all. They really kind of underplayed them being like this weird group of freaks. Certainly compared to the remake, where they are very strange looking yep. in that movie. Um, but you know what? I think we've made the case, Liam. I think the people out there have enough material to chew on, and they can tell us what they think about The Hills Have Eyes. What we need to do now is take another break. And when we come back, you're going to talk to me. You're going to tell me about this movie, Alucarda, which you think is all so great. You think it's the cat's pajamas, Liam? We'll talk about that right after this. Susana Camini. <laughs> Adriana Roer. Tina French. After the death of her parents, a young girl arrives at a convent and brings a sinister presence with her. Is it her enigmatic, imaginary friend, Alucarda, who is to blame? She's not imaginary. Yeah, why does that say imaginary? (laughs) 
I have no idea. Can I start this over? Yeah, please. Sorry. I took that right from the IMDb. Why the fuck does it say imaginary? I don't know. After the death of her parents, a young girl arrives at a convent and brings its sinister presence with her. Is it her enigmatic and definitely not imaginary, no matter what IMDb tells you, friend, Alucarda, who is to blame? Or is there a satanic force at work? Wait, isn't Alucarda the one who... Okay, anyway, we'll talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should leave all this in, because uh, this is 1977's Alucarda, a film apparently so confusing that whoever wrote this up on IMDb couldn't figure out if Alucarda was a real person or not. Uh, (laughs) She is. It is directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma, who uh, you may know from... um, uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, list of favorite Mexican directors. He was up there. Um, uh, it's based on the on, uh, the novel. You don't have the name here, but I think it's Camilla, right? By Sheridan. Uh, was it my job to put the name there, Liam? I think you can handle your own notes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this was cut and pasted from IMDb, which doesn't say what the novel is for some weird reason. Uh, and then the story was worked on by, it looks like, a lot of different people. Yeah. Uh, Alexis Arroyo, Juan Lopez Moctezuma, who's the director. Yolanda Lopez Moctezuma, which might be his sister or his wife. I don't know. Uh, and starring uh, Claudio Brook as Dr. Ozek and the Humback Gypsy. Uh, David Silva as uh, Father Lazaro. Tina Romero as Alucarda and as Alucarda's mother earlier in the film, which we'll get to that, and Susanna Camini as Justine. Uh, it looks like also uh, notably Martin LaSalle and uh, Manuel Donde are in this, uh, but only in very small, very small roles, very small roles. Uh, so, Doug, Alucarda is a, a film that's only recently gotten attention, and, and it, it really strikes me as kind of a sort of insane nightmare kind of film the, the film <laughs> that is not particularly interested in uh narrative fluidity as much as it is in utterly upsetting things that will make you want to maybe turn it off possibly uh but it also has some aspects that that make me think of uh political themes like rebellion resistance uh uh, facing oppressive regimes, whether those regimes are religious or political, mm-hmm. um, as uh, sort of a Protestant, lily-white Canadian who doesn't <laughs> believe in anything and is confused by the uh, hearty beliefs held by other people, especially brown people, were you able to relate to this film at all? Yes, though... <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I don't disagree with anything you just said. <laughs> uh, it's... There is that that kind of meeting between faith and science at it, at the core of this movie that that goes in some interesting directions, especially when it comes down on the on the side of faith pretty pretty handily uh, in the last you know half hour twenty minutes or so. Um, though I you know I, I don't think you can take that necessarily too seriously in regards to um, how intellectual that that argument is supposed to be presented because at its core this is a movie that is based around you know thrills and having something exciting happen every 10 or 15 minutes or so you know the structure of this movie is familiar even if a lot of the content is really dreamlike even if it can be a little difficult to get a handle on the 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 plot as it's unfolding in front of you that said it's not so confusing that anyone should think Alucarda was an imaginary person within the movie itself boy I'd like to I got to pick that person's brain and find out what they were thinking when watching that. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, let's be clear. um, The movie actually opens with Alucarda's birth as something that is 
uh, important and uh, as a sign of upsetting things to come. And then it switches to the character of Justine, whose yes. parents die and she's dropped off at the convent. But you already know that Alucarda was born in the very creepy monastery covered in blood sheets that we yeah. see later in the movie. And so you already know that there is something supernatural and and possibly upsetting about Alucarda. Um, but certainly not that she's imaginary. One of the big signs of uh, an imaginary friend is that other people don't interact with them. <laughs> but lots of characters interact with Alucarda because she's a real girl in the world. It's also notable, and this is a spoiler, and I apologize, but it's kind of important to talk about, that Justine dies in this movie, and then yep. Alucarda continues <laughs> on as a character. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, I just can't see I mean, you, that you work. Could, you could make a strong argument that the justine exists in the movie so for for two reasons one so that there is a a a bit of an innocent along with alicarda as she takes this journey into the occult and two for all the lesbian undertones since the the film (laughs) is almost entirely about uh lesbianism uh, just after it's about religion and satan it's about lesbianism yeah, absolutely. And, and whether that's in there because of a point that it's trying to make or whether it's in there because it's a very marketable thing, especially when you think of nunsploitation, which this movie sort of fits into. It doesn't fit into as cleanly as a lot of the movies of the 1970s that probably had a less um, had, had had maybe less interesting motives regarding the type of story that they were talking about. This is obviously um, a movie that has something to say. In fact, a lot of different things to say, as you already hinted at. Um, But it it kind of coats that in a really interesting shell. And of course, the movie that you can't help but think about when you're watching this is Ken Russell's The Devils, which is a movie that it kind of echoes visually in a lot of ways, and certainly in terms of some of the content as well. But mostly I think about it because of its willingness to go to extremes in regards to what it's presenting. And that, that goes to the surreality of what of, of what's being uh, presented on screen, but also in regards to the histronic performances that are, are being presented because this movie, whatever you think of it, um, th- this is a movie that is not like other movies. Uh, you know, like I said, the devils comes to mind, but this is a movie that goes to places that I, even though I had seen it before, it's been probably 15, 20 years since I've seen it. I was shocked at, Oh yeah. You know, like the the, uh, the the kind of Satanist uh, ceremonies that are, that are being shown here. This is a movie that's willing to go to extremes in order to tell the story that it's trying to tell, uh, which maybe is only possible because it doesn't have sort of that kind of mainstream sheen that a movie like The Hills Have Eyes has. And I know it's kind of strange to even talk about that movie as being mainstream, but I mean, it is. It kind of it, That was a widely released movie in 1977. This is a movie that you can see a lot of people kind of stumbling onto and discovering and being blown away with just how far it's willing to go. Yeah, I mean, we should name too that there's a bit of a connection to the devils in that um, there's a suggestion that what these girls are dealing with is mental illness and that the church is completely incapable of dealing with that mental illness. But it's it's a loaded scene uh, in the devils. Uh, What you get is really a story about the Catholic church that is uninterested in the in the veracity of their claims like the 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 catholic church could be right and the catholic church portrayed in the devils would still be an immoral political organization crushing people's lives for its own power the devils is a film much more interested in the satirical side of that right 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 right. this is a film in which 
you are very much convinced by all the arguments that the doctor is making, only you know that it's not true because you've literally seen Baphomet show up and bless these two little girls. Exactly. So it doesn't matter all the arguments he's making. And and in fact, that is sort of uh, one of the interesting things about the film that we'll get into in a sec. Before that, though, we've already mentioned Justine. We've mentioned uh, Alucarda. Um, there's also a few other standout performances, including the dual performance of the gypsy and uh, uh hunchback and the doctor being the same actor i just wanted to ask you really quick here doug like what were some of your favorite performances in this film because this is to me a film that does not rely on special effects gore anything this movie rides almost entirely on its setting and its actors and it relies on those things plus a utterly insane unjustifiable score that you, I just don't know who made it and <laughs> what drugs they were on when they made it. Um, it relies on those things to be compelling and succeeds. So I really wanted to know from you, like what were the performances that really sort of worked for you in this film? It's interesting because this is a dubbed movie, uh, even though yeah. all the actors are speaking English, at least it appears that they're all speaking English. This is a movie that is dubbed and probably the performances in another film of this ilk, would suffer because of that, but I actually think it actually adds to some of the atmosphere and some of the um, some of the dreamlike quality that this movie has. And the performances I think are really strong. You know, Claudia Brooke as the Doctor and as the Hunchback. I actually, until I looked at the credits afterwards, I didn't realize that they were played by the same actor, which is, I guess, a credit to him. I do have to say, Liam, I'm embarrassed to say it, but. In the final 20 minutes, his performance as a doctor reminded me so much of Eric Roberts because of just how he looked just a little bit like him. And he had he had sort of this weird slur in his speech that reminded me of him. So just saying, if you want to remake Alucard in the year 2020, uh, as soon as Eric Roberts gets out of quarantine, which he seems to be enjoying a lot, you can get him into that project. But I mean, the, the star of the show here is Tina Romero as Alucard, who's unbelievable. I mean, she's really something else here. Um, and the, I don't... I mean, a lot of the heavy lifting of it comes from the fact that this character is very kind of gothy and very mysterious, and we know that she has this connection to this kind of dark material, but she really pulls it off. Now, these characters are supposed to be like 15 years old, and this movie has a lot of sexuality in it. and I mean, more nudity than sexuality, really, but certainly there is a burning undertone, as you've already suggested in regards to it. And I don't want to discount Susanna Kamini's performance as Justine, her performance has to carry the naivety of that character. Yeah. So it's not as showy. And I think she does a really good job and she's very striking looking. Uh, but I also think that the priest, uh, Father Lazaro, I think that character is really interesting, especially because of the turn. Because I think you're supposed to think of him as, if not ignorant to, I mean, maybe it's just what I'm bringing with me to this movie, but that, you know, he a lot of his beliefs are based in superstition. This movie takes place, I think, in what, the mid mid to late 1800s. Um, and like he's he's kind of a throwback, uh, and there's there's scenes of self-flagellation, and it's supposed to seem sort of at odds with kind of the modern thinking of the doctor. But at some point, that thing gets switched around, and the father is the person who has more of a handle on the situation because he has this belief in these kind of bigger-than-life supernatural elements and has ways of dealing with them. So it's, it's an interesting character, uh, and there is an intensity to all of the performances here that 
it it really is pitched up so high that it makes it really difficult to take your eyes off of it. These are characters that are willing to you know start screaming in ecstasy and in confusion and uh, and roll around, especially in that sequence where both um, Alucarda and Justine are being tortured, and the nuns are losing their shit as it's happening. Which again, that that's another thing that reminded me a lot of Ken Russell's The Devil. Oh, Devils, very much. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of sequences of that in that movie, but. Um, Though I've brought that movie up several times, and there is, I think, a clear influence on this movie, this isn't like the influence on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on The Hills Have Eyes. This is a very separate kind of movie, and it's doing something really unique. I have to say, I'm, I was really excited by this movie when I was watching it, uh, it just because it, it felt like it could do anything. Like It felt like yeah. it could go into a place that you just wouldn't expect, that it wasn't... Um, reliant on the structure of traditional movie making and it wasn't reliant on the imagery that you expect out of traditional movie making and that's kind of exciting for me someone who you know ex- enjoys the more uh experimental style uh, that some people bring to it what at its core is still an exploitation movie yeah i uh, i agree it's there's something about its willingness to um use sometimes what I would consider to be very kind of like uh, romantic or impressionistic filmmaking techniques to, to, to do things in an otherwise straightforward narrative. Sure. Um, and that the entire satanic ritual sequence is so insane that yeah. you have to figure this is a Mexican film in 1977. If it played in Mexico, some people left that movie yeah, just fucked up. There's just no way that they watched that and were like, oh, this is fine and not upsetting at all. Like mm-hmm. they were probably thinking like, I'm probably possessed by the devil right now. Um, I think it's worth, I'm glad that you brought up David Silva's performance as Father Lazaro. I actually think that not only is that a great performance, but it's one of the more upsetting performances for me, even right. as he is supposed to be sweeping in with the insight of how to fight the devil. Sure. He's, he's upsetting. He, he, he almost feels like a villain at times. Like, yeah, it, absolutely. It, it just utterly. That's what I was talking about. The idea that the switch occurs. It felt like the first half of the movie is setting him up as a villain. And then he is the only one who knows the steps to take when things really get bad. Yeah. And then uh, Claudio Brook. It's worth mentioning that both Claudio Brook and David Silva are the known quantities in this film. Tina Romero would go on to do a lot more stuff and, and be known and stuff. But uh, really when this came out, those were the two actors who had a bit of a career that people sure. would recognize, which might explain why Claudio Brooke played two characters, but I think there might be something else going on. What did you think? I, you said you didn't notice right away. Do you think there's a thematic reason that the doctor and the gypsy are the same person? Is there, is there commentary there or is it just like, Oh, we've got this one guy that everybody knows. Let's have him do two characters. It's kind of neat. I mean, it's a little hard to say without being a little more familiar with his career and knowing if he played sort of more off-the-wall characters. And it's an opportunity to play really the most extremely strange character in the movie, with with being the Hunchback, and then the most normal character in The Doctor. Uh, I do think that that this movie plays with this notion of belief and faith versus science to the extent that having a character that is bathed in one or the other the same actor playing those two characters i mean i think there has to be something there but i'd have to consider it in a little more detail i just think that that it is interesting that these two extremes are enveloped by the same actor yeah i i i do wonder if there's some connection there of modernity and and satan um and and if so it would sort of suggest to me what the movie does that i think is interesting that we can talk about a little bit is that on one hand 
everything that the religious folks claim about Satan, about the vulnerability of these young women, turns out to, at one level, be true. Like, the world they're describing is real. On the other hand, I think the film goes out of its way to make them look like monsters. The mm-hmm. the scene where they're all whipping themselves trying to determine what to do and, and how bad things are is not meant to be comforting. It's one no. of the most upsetting parts of the movie. And these are meant to be our heroes. I, I, I just find myself identifying with Alucarda as she's, you know, claiming the names of the princes of hell so that various nuns burst into flames. Yeah. That's actually one of the most like celebratory moments of the film for me. And that's weird in a movie, usually a movie that is this critical. Like the whole point of the devils being critical is not to affirm their superstition, but quite literally to show how crazy they're being. Exactly. And this film does the the exact opposite, but maybe affirms in a more direct way, some of the same feelings about the Catholic <laughs> Church. And I just, you know, it, it, what is that about? Um, wh- what do we think about that clash that the movie sets up, whether that's between myth and reason or between modernity and tradition or between uh, the church and women, uh, whatever that is. How did you feel about, um, you know, sort of the dramatic tension of, of this film? And, and how does the ending for you play into that? Does that underwrite? this clash or does it go against it uh what, what's your feeling about the since we talked a lot about the themes of the hills have eyes what was your feeling on the themes of this movie yeah i do think that there's a little more to them maybe it's just a little more visible to me it's it's hard to it certainly was very surprising to me when that switch takes place in the movie not that i thought at the end it was going to all end up just being mental illness or something like that or that they were even going to make it so you weren't sure what to believe necessarily i mean it's the 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 supernatural elements that in the movie had been um developed at to that point that you weren't going to necessarily believe that it could all be explained away by science but it does feel like there's a point in the movie where it pivots a little in regards to what we're supposed to think as the audience are the people in charge of of what's going on and um but you're right there's also and you mentioned the sl- the flagellation scene but there's also the scene where uh, Justine gets tortured to death which yeah. is a horrific scene and you know she's being uh, poked and be- there's basically bloodletting occurring and she's being uh, prodded and all the blood is coming out and she basically bleeds to death in front of these writhing nuns um and and I mean there's no way you can watch that and think oh these are people who are meant to be presented sympathetically. If anything, Alucarda and Justine's relationship, even though it's it's tied very uh, directly to Satanism and Satan and and kind of the the, the darkness enveloped in that, you're you're still drawn to them and they are still the main characters. You're not supposed to necessarily dislike them. I, I would suggest that that sequence where they're in class and they just start to uh, monotonely, um, uh, you know, uh, say the name of of demons and and uh, and quote from the Bible and kind of freak out everyone in the room, even though it seems like they were not entirely within their own control. That you're supposed to be in some way being like, that's pretty cool that they're that they're making the the mother superior or the teacher in that case be, be like really upset by this. I do think that you're supposed to be on some level rooting for Alucarda and Justine and their relationship, which I think ties into the, um, maybe not. So it ties into sort of the overt feminist themes on display here. Um, 
though I do struggle a little bit with how far this movie is able to go maybe in regards to those themes. Sure. It's, it's acceptance of their relationship. I mean, these are two characters who, you know, 15 minutes into the movie are talking about how they love each other and that if one dies, the other one's going to die to be with them and that sort of thing. It also, you know, Alucarda, even though she is sort of cursed from birth, it does seem like it's not until she, um, desecrates or or uncovers her mother's grave that all of this is set into motion and whether you know whether sh- she was necessarily fated to this until that moment is something that i'm not sure the movie necessarily confirms yeah i i was gonna say you could possibly make some of the arguments that we were making about the hills have eyes about maybe uh, thematic inconsistencies but i think that kind of misses the point i think it's supposed to be taking what is a familiar uh, the idea that these two innocent girls could be corrupted by the devil and then you know have this whole thing happen that's not an unfamiliar sort of folk idea but this film sort of takes it and turns it on its head in a way that i think is meant to be subversive um and, and i think it asks some interesting questions of us in that way i i i have some more i want to say about that but i wanted to reference really quick here this is a film a wash a wash in blood and and, yes. and and you guys will get the feeling from that we've already talked about the flagellation the bloodletting but yo the nurses or nurses i'm sorry no, the okay. nuns are wearing gauze outfits yeah that look to be always stained red as if they're showing off the amount to which they're bleeding from their self-flagellation the the abandoned monastery where all the evil things are sort of at has these blood red uh uh cloth hanging from it and when justine is brought back she's basically a vampire she's in a yeah she's in a tomb of blood that she emerges from and, and must feast um and uh there's just this consistent through line of this idea of of blood and i i just wanted to know what you made of that thematically visually just whatever if that had any resonance for you i mean with a convent of you know, women, even though men are brought in at some point in the movie, uh, wearing these apparently stained dresses or stained uh, uniforms. And with all this bloodletting and blood on display, you can't not think of menstruation, which I think is entirely intentional. Um, But in terms of what it's supposed to mean, particularly when it comes to Justine arising out of this kind of bath of blood at the end, uh, the kind of... uh, whether that is supposed to be her transformation or a sense of purity or something like that, it's a little hard to say. And it's interesting what you were saying just a moment ago, Liam, about the idea that the fact that we're struggling maybe with some of the themes that are on display here, the way that that, I thought that that maybe was a um, difficulty in The Hills Have Eyes or uh, a knock against it, I actually think it's a positive here. because Agreed. Yeah, here I think it's because there's so much on display and because there's so much that you can struggle with that different people can take a lot of different things away from it. And I'm not saying that there aren't various interpretations of The Hills Have Eyes, but to me, that film relies on those interpretations. This one is like, this is just something very interesting to chew on and to take away from. You can watch this movie, not even notice that everyone looks like they're stained in blood, not even, you know, really struggle with this science versus religion uh, aspect at its core and still enjoy it as a really exciting and interesting and unique exploitation movie. But there absolutely is more on display here. And the blood, I mean, whether it ties into 
um, the the sexuality on display because again these are very young women 15 again even with all the nudity in this movie is what they're supposed to be uh, obviously the actresses are much older um, and and whether it's it that's playing into their loss of innocence or, or symbolic of their loss of innocence I'm not sure but I do know that there is something there yeah I mean I, I really want to um, remind folks this is an example you know people you know this uh doing your own podcast but i certainly know this doing horror business that there is a real pushback a lot of times from people when it comes to um thinking about politics in relationship to horror Mm -hmm. but you know this is a mexican film yes uh, in 1977 when there is intense political unrest there's questions about the influence of the church you know there's it's within a context and i don't think the context is a limit on the film which is like how we think of politics and art that um um uh that somehow putting film or any art within the context of a political environment limits the possibilities of meaning. There's right. endless possibilities of meaning, even beyond what was ever was intention. Um, but and there's I, also we have to accept that because this is a Mexican film of that time period, that there are going to be nuances that we cannot grasp as as people in the year 2020 who are so distanced from that. And I think that's okay too. I think it's important that you can explore that and start to uh, maybe research that and get a better sense. But the fact that we don't fully grasp that, I think that's okay as an audience member um, in a way that there are certain political films that are very much of their time that if you don't have a full understanding of those political uh, instances that you can't really grasp the film properly. I think in this case, uh, for me, I walked away really feeling like this was, and this is a common idea in the 70s, that the the extremities of good and evil are defined by religion itself. So right. with the exit of religion, we we no longer have to deal with this sort of extreme battle. It, it feels like Justine and Alucard are caught between two actual real power forces that don't care about them the devil doesn't care about them the church doesn't care about them the church succeeds in murdering justine and that's good it's good that they did this thing to her right because it's it's one less soul for the devil which of course they lose anyway because justine comes back to life and 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 ends up murdering one of the few people who cares about her that's right maybe maybe the the sole thoroughly sympathetic character in the movie yeah and 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 uh, similarly at the end when alucarda has fully given herself to the devil and is exactly acting this intense uh, revenge on the church it's the sight of that dead sister that really sort of uh breaks her hold a little bit and and breaks her power more uh more than what father rosaro is doing though that has some effect there's definitely power in the church it's more the her own compassion her own realization of how far she's gone that that halts her and and you could see in that the clash between youth and 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 adults that that throughout the world there's this young generation that wants change and these older folks who are trying to crush them and in the middle people are getting hurt who maybe don't deserve to be hurt but there's this feeling you have to do it anyway but i think there's a sense in which within the context of this film that religion creates this battle and that you're caught between this battle and it doesn't have to be that way per se that almost at the end alucarda dies but the church also burns that that imagery suggests like that with the end of this power structure you have the end of that battle between good and evil um it's just one interpretation but it seems to fit with you know what i've kind of read a little bit about the director and things like that so um but 
all in all, what I love about this movie, and I think this is true in a way that isn't true for The Hills Have Eyes, is that the movie is so much more than all of that. Obviously, all these thoughts about a society that is struggling with its belief system, a society that's struggling with its traditions and its identity, a society that's trying to adjust to a new world that is changing in front of them is a society of turmoil. That's clearly what's going on in the film, but it's not limited to that. If you're watching this at home, I doubt you're sitting there going, well, if only I knew about the politics in Mexico in 1977, I'd be right, able to understand right. this movie. Mm-hmm. That's not there at all. Uh, whereas I do think there's a specific specificity to The Hills Have Eyes that kind of requires you to know a little bit. And even then, it's not clear if if the movie is clear about what it's trying to say. I don't know if I necessarily agree entirely with that in the sense that I think that most of the audience that have loved and appreciated The Hills Have Eyes have done so without necessarily thinking yeah, that's about fair. those no, yeah, that's things fair. and that, that are enjoying it more on a visceral level and enjoying it more on a, you know, on a structural level. Um, and here, I don't think you can watch this and not at least... I don't think you are forced to tangle with some of the themes that you were just talking about, um, but I don't think you could ignore that they're on display in some way. I do wonder a little bit whether the fact that this movie comes down, it doesn't really make, it doesn't come down. I'm, I'm not going to say like it's, it's not coming down on the side of religion or anything along those lines, but I do wonder if this movie would be impossible to release in 1977 in Mexico if at the end they they were the religion was made to look foolish and completely ineffective or something along those lines as opposed to just maybe misguided in the way that it's sometimes shown in this movie i do also think that there's something to the fact that alucarda isn't really defeated in a in a traditional way in this movie that she kind of capitulates sure. and just sort of fades away as the uh, as the building is burning around her um and and uh, you know i think there's there's more to investigate into regards to that as well all that said, I hope that this discussion, if it doesn't reinforce anything else, is that this is a really interesting and I think undervalued movie. I know it's been written about certainly a lot in recent years, and um, but but I, I think it's a movie that in a lot of ways it's very ahead of its time. And while I don't have any difficulty with nunsploitation as an exploitation genre, I think the there are a lot of really inferior movies that are that are categorized like that. And if you think of this within that category, it might make you think less of it than the movie that you actually get, which I think is trying to do a lot more than some of the exploitation movies often lumped in under that name. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that there, you know, there's a reason to watch this regardless of how you feel about a film that has a complicated message around the church. Um, But, you know, as, as much as, that is there. I also like thinking about sort of the complexity of what's going on, knowing that, you know, Moctezuma was part of uh, the surreal community that Yodorowsky was a part of and talk about, talk about a series of films you could chew on for days and not be able to figure (laughs) it out. Uh, You could take, I I, I mean, one of the things I always tell to people before they watch the Holy mountain is like, don't try to figure it out. Just let it make you feel things. And I think that's true of Alucarda. I I love talking about all the possible politics and religious and philosophical stuff. But in reality, that's all, none of that is restrictive. That's not what the movie is about. Uh, But it is all interesting things you can pull from it. A better way to watch the movie 
especially if you haven't seen it yet, is just to let it happen to you mm-hmm. and figure out how it makes you feel. Uh, a lot of people I talk to, regardless about how they feel about religion, when they're looking at the camera saying the names of those princes of hell, it's kind of an awesome moment. It's Absolutely. super compelling. Mm-hmm. It's frightening, but it's not frightening in a way where you're scared for yourself. It's frightening like, are they actually invoking the devil right now? What does that even mean? I don't know what's happening. Yeah, it's strange because like people... If you were reading about this, you, you might think, oh, this is scary. Like, The Exorcist is scary in the way that it plays with faith and, and uh, uh, innocent youth being overtaken by the devil. But that's not how this plays out at all. This is a much more exciting movie. Um, and, and again, that's not a dis- disparaging The Exorcist, which I think is a masterpiece. But like, this is a movie that you are excited to see exactly how far the devil is able to take these these young people and and maybe you kind of are rooting for them in some ways and it's it's uh yeah i think there's a lot of conflicting feelings in regards to it and i think a lot of those are very intentional but i was really happy to revisit this and even though it's working against myself a little bit <laughs> and i really want to hear arguments from listeners uh in regards to which film that they prefer and why um this is a movie that i think that if you have not seen it's worth going out of your way to check out as soon as possible well, I mean, obviously any movie I chose would have to be better than whatever <laughs> movie you chose. But, you know, and, and, I, and I sort of played unfair here because I could have chosen Burn Offerings, another movie that I very much love. But it's just the idea of putting Burn Offerings up against The Hills Have Eyes just felt unfair in a lot of ways. <laughs> Even if I enjoy that movie more, um, it's, it's just a different kind of thing. So uh, I decided to pick what I felt was uh stacking the cards in my favor and went with alucarda (laughs) um so uh you know i guess we're at this point where we have to decide you know like which which is the better movie here doug oh i can't decide liam but i'm gonna point to the listeners and ask you to tell us which uh you think are superior i'm gonna put up polls on both our facebook and twitter groups and we'll return to those polls on the next episode and we'll see what people think in regards to which is the superior movie hopefully it will give people a chance to listen to this first before they make their decision wait did we do that last time we did but it was still i mean it was our first episode ever so we didn't get a lot of response in regards to it so i kind of want to throw out those polls maybe because because they didn't uh, support my own position. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> that I think this will be our, our first more uh, legitimate one. So, and again, if you have any feedback, we can certainly, maybe we'll refer to that on the next episode as well. Great. Well, uh, we just want to thank everybody for listening, for checking us out here. Uh, we're, we're really surprised and, and excited about the support we've been getting. Uh, and we hope that you will, you know, check out our website, check out cinepunks.com, follow us on various social media uh, outlets. We're on uh, Twitter, we're Cinema Smorg. Just stop at the G mm-hmm. and you're done. Uh, the website cinesmorgasbord.com. Cinepunks is uh, uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. Um, and uh, our, the page on Facebook is just Cinema Smorgasbord? Yeah, if you do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook, it'll find you. Uh, sorry, you'll find it right away, and uh, and we'll add you in there. And, yeah, become part of the conversation. Give us feedback. Suggest other shows that we could add to Cinema Smorgasbord. We're always open to that sort of idea. There will be new ones coming in the future. And, uh, yeah, tell us what you enjoy and what we can work on. Yeah. Uh, If people want to follow you on Twitter, Doug, where should they go? You can go over to Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And you can follow Liam on there as well. It's uh, Liam Rules with a Z at the end of it. It's very cool. Very modern. R-U-L-Z. Do that. And uh, yeah, you can... (laughs) 
Give us feedback on there as well. And if you get the opportunity, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. It helps the show. Just a little thing that you can do for free. What else do you got to do? You're locked in your home right now. The world's going to shit. You might as well give us a review on iTunes. Y'all, stay safe. Stay away from each other, but still love each other. And, uh, you know, tell someone about the show. We we appreciate you, and we hope that uh, y'all join us back here for the next episode. Good night. Good night.